Welcome to Wild Trekker. I'm George Toombs here in Montreal, and this is the 31st episode. Wild Trekker is a series of podcasts, a writer's notebook, audio chapters from ongoing works, soundscapes, adventures, interviews with fascinating people, reflections, original radio plays, reportage, stories behind stories, jam sessions, and more. Wild Trekker is a fluid kind of sound art. I hope you enjoy it. In the works of René Descartes, the metaphor of the human machine undergoes a sudden transformation. Vesalius and Harvey were anatomists who did some philosophizing. Their interpretations of man as an organic machine were frequently couched in terms of colorful analogies, which served to explain their own rigorous observations and experiments. But Descartes is, above all, a leading philosopher of the scientific renaissance, a philosopher who does some anatomizing. His use of the metaphor of the human machine is based less on observation than on an abstract and even dogmatic principle, which he uses as a point of departure, then seeks to demonstrate by means of subsequent speculation on anatomy, and occasionally backs up with illustrative material drawn from Vesalius and Harvey. Descartes seeks to provide a mechanistic demonstration, first of the system or physiology of the human body, subject to universal mechanical laws which can be mathematically established, and second of the union of body and soul. Descartes is looking to prove an abstract theory and to support it by transferring the newly acquired prestige of mathematics and medical science to his own way of thinking. Descartes restates in a compelling way the two centuries-old view that the human being is an organic machine, in the sense that a living creature can be interpreted in terms of mechanical structure, such as pipes and fountains, as well as mechanical processes, such as thrusting, raising, lowering, seeing, smelling, feeling, and so forth. Man is like a calculating and measuring machine, such as a clock, 
capable of mathematical predictability, harmony, and rationality. We shouldn't forget that Descartes greatly prizes the certainty offered by mathematical explanation. And the workings of this clock can be used to explain the configurations and motions of human and animal bodies. For Descartes, the human can be represented on the model of an automaton, a relatively self-operating mechanical object, such as a trick fountain or water-operated robotic animal. That human has been produced by the mind of God. And finally, that human can be seen as a sort of universal machine, a being not nearly so perfect as God, yet nonetheless capable of some godlike operations. Descartes is one of the greatest of all mathematicians and philosophers of modern times. He plays a key role in articulating the methods of the new mechanistic science. He brings to his work the mathematician's penchant for certainty, the logician's taste for sharp distinctions, the experimental scientist's passion for experience and observation, and the man of faith's desire to reconcile the physical universe with belief in God and his creation. This is all a very tall order, and you'll see how he puts it together. Indeed, Descartes' interpretation of the dualism of body and soul leads him to delve into what can only be called speculative anatomy, the practice of attributing to particular organs the seat of the imagination, the common sense, and the soul. This compromise actually ends up weakening the case he makes for dualism. It's perhaps not surprising, in view of the crucial importance of the Cartesian man-machine to Descartes' philosophical program, that a qualitative change takes place in the metaphor of the human machine. For Leonardo da Vinci, Vesalius, and Harvey, the metaphor of the human machine had been an analogy, which served to explain the organic structure and processes they observed. For Descartes, the metaphor has become an abstract equation linking the human body and the machine, and that equation becomes one of the pillars of an entire philosophical system. When I say equation, this should actually come as no surprise. It seems to have been one of Descartes' main habits of thought, given his passion for geometrical equations, his equation of matter with extension, and his equation of mind with existence. To put it another way, metaphor as analogy likens one thing to another. Metaphor as equation affirms that one thing is another. Descartes can be said to have invented an idealized mechanistic body and to have fashioned the union of body and soul, which in turn serves as one of the foundations for his mechanistic philosophy. This is important for the history of the human machine. Descartes openly acknowledges he's learned particular mechanical details about the human organism 
from Vesalius and Harvey, Descartes' philosophy of the human machine stands in stark contrast to the materialistic view of Hobbes, with whom he corresponds and to whom I will refer in the fourth of this seven-part series of podcasts. Descartes is a daunting figure. His philosophy is as wide-ranging as Sir Francis Bacon's, and indeed he has the same life ambition as Bacon, to establish a new systematic basis for certain and true knowledge which will help overcome the limitations of the variety of Aristotelianism then prevalent. René Descartes was born in 1596 at La Haye in Touraine, in central France, to a family of the minor nobility. He studies at the Jesuit College of La Fleche, graduating in 1616, then takes a bachelor's degree from the University of Poitiers two years later, and enters the service of Prince Maurice of Nassau in Breda, Holland, the following year. Descartes is a driven man who wants to make his imprint on the natural philosophy of his age. I believe that this personal drive operates on an unconscious level, and this, I believe, because of the three-part dream Descartes has in November 1619, in which he discovers the foundations of a wonderful science. That's the phrase attributed to him by his early 17th century biographer, Adrien Bayet. That Descartes should, in turn, seek to base his life work of rationality on these three traumatizing dreams suggests to me that there is a neurotic strain in his personality verging on narcissism and even messianism. There's some irony in the fact that this avowed rationalist should use these vivid but involuntary dreams to build up a personal mythology, placing the dreams at the center of a bold life mission which in itself is purportedly to establish true knowledge of rational order throughout the universe. Descartes' correspondence shows to what extent he is a tortured soul. This anxiety in large part motivates his decision in 1629 to leave the intellectual orthodoxy of France for the tolerance of Holland. In 1637, for example, he takes great pains to negotiate a sort of intellectual truce with the very powerful Jesuit order. He writes, I know that the main reason your colleges take great care to reject all sorts of innovations in philosophical matters is their fear that these innovations may bring about some change in theology as well. That's why I want especially to point out that you have nothing to fear on this score so far as my own innovations are concerned.
Well, there's a rather cringing side to Descartes' personality, which he sometimes uses to half-shield the messianic image he's formed of himself. On February 15, 1638, he thanks a friend for sending some books which shore up my views with the authority of Aristotle. How fortunate that man was. Whatever he wrote, whether he gave it much thought or not, is regarded by most people today as having oracular authority. A week later, in a more boastful vein, Descartes writes to another correspondent that his conscience and the force of truth give him the courage to describe the creation of the universe in terms which even he, ten years previously, would never have believed. In a letter to Marin Mersenne, written on Christmas Day 1639, is an expression of Descartes' belief that humans have an unlimited will to achieve godlike perfection. Then, about a year later, Descartes writes to Mersenne, implying that his own philosophical views are of the same degree of certainty as the revealed truth of Catholicism itself. He writes, Since I have firm faith in the infallibility of the Church, and in addition have no doubts about my own arguments, I cannot have any fear that one truth may be in conflict with another. A few months later, Descartes nervously refers to the church condemnation of Galileo Galilei, and he maintains that he's confident he can show that his doctrines accord with the faith better than the supporters of Aristotle. But he's also anxiously contemplating burning all his manuscripts because of what has just happened to Galileo. He proposes publication strategies to friends in order to avoid problems with the Catholic Church in France. His attacks on Aristotle get him into trouble with Dutch Protestantism as well. Ultimately, he develops a long correspondence with Elizabeth of Bohemia and then accepts an invitation from Queen Christina of Sweden to move to her court, where he will rarely meet her. Descartes dies ultimately in Stockholm in 1650. The Cartesian method of acquiring knowledge should be set in the context of the scientific renaissance, during which several original thinkers chart out approaches to the acquisition of scientific knowledge. Descartes yields to some logical fallacies, which are actively denounced by some of his contemporaries.
In the place of the Aristotelian syllogism, Bacon proposes an altogether different method. Inductive science consists in analyzing experience and taking it to pieces, and by a due process of exclusion and rejection leading to an inevitable conclusion. The true method of experience, Bacon writes in the New Organon, first lights the candle, and then by means of the candle shows the way, commencing as it does with experience duly ordered and digested, not bungling or erratic, and from it educing axioms, and from established axioms again new experiments, even as it was not without order and method that the divine word operated on the created mass. Bacon continues, Let me therefore cease to wonder that the course of science is not yet wholly run, seeing that they have gone altogether astray, either leaving and abandoning experience entirely, or losing their way in it, and wandering round and round, as in a labyrinth, whereas a method rightly ordered leads by an unbroken route through the woods of experience to the open ground of axioms. Well, using this more systematic approach to experience, Bacon is convinced that it will be possible to collect a store of particular observations sufficient in number, in kind, and in certainty to inform the understanding. These observations, derived from systematic experience, will in turn be duly investigated and verified, counted, weighed, and measured in order to provide trustworthy information. While Bacon is by no means an original scientific investigator, he nevertheless shows much interest in mathematics. He's good at conceptualizing how knowledge should be acquired, and he is instrumental through the rich imagery of the New Atlantis of 1627 in setting a model for a community devoted to scientific cooperation and experiment. And in fact, the model in the New Atlantis is very important in the future development of the Royal Society and many other scientific societies around the world. Between 1629 and 1638, Galileo Galilei develops a four-part theory of sense experience and its role in building more certain knowledge. In the dialogue concerning the two chief world systems, Galileo cautions in the person of Sagredo, it always seems to me extreme rashness on the part of some when they want to make human abilities the measure of what nature can do. There's not a single effect in nature, not even the least that exists, such that the most ingenious theorists can ever arrive at a complete understanding of it. This vain presumption of understanding everything can have no other basis than never understanding anything. First, Galileo says, sense experience can be used to refute false ideas. Second, sense experience can be appealed to in order to build up new knowledge of natural philosophy. Third, Galileo's insistence on sense experience turns science into a self-correcting, forward-looking enterprise. This is an important statement for Galileo to make, since it means that natural philosophy, what we call science nowadays, doesn't consist of a static body of ancient texts, which should be commented upon and reinterpreted endlessly in the light of authority. 
Instead, natural philosophy or science involves a dynamic process of posing new questions and seeking evidence to provide answers, which can subsequently be overshadowed by fresh questions and evidence pointing to new answers. And fourth, Galileo says, sense experience redirects the enterprise of natural philosophy away from a priori speculative reasoning on the occult properties of objects towards rigorous experimentation for the purpose of recording their observable properties. So Galileo implies in this statement that speculative reasoning on occult properties owes much to the eloquence of the speaker, but the advantage of rigorous experimentation lies in the fact it can be repeated by anyone respecting an investigative protocol. This in turn emphasizes the truly competitive and collective nature of the scientific enterprise. Bacon and Galileo both deliberately confront Aristotelianism for their own reasons. I'll just take a moment to note that Harvey, writing in Anatomical Exercises on the Generation of Animals, published in 1651, upholds Aristotle's views on the manner and order of acquiring knowledge. I believe this is significant since scholars have often claimed that the new scientific method developed as a reaction to Aristotle. Harvey attacks the validity of innate ideas and advocates instead the fundamental role of sense perception, leading to the following chain of mental operations. He says, the thing perceived by sense remains. From the permanence of the thing perceived results memory. From multiplied memory, experience. From experience, universal reason, definitions, and maxims or common axioms, the most certain principles of knowledge. There's no perfect knowledge which can be entitled ours that is innate. None but what has been obtained from experience or derived in some way from our senses. So while I note the anti-Aristotelian views of Bacon and Galileo, it's not difficult for Harvey to justify his defense of Aristotle, who has remained far more relevant to biology than to other branches of natural philosophy in the 17th century, such as astronomy. For his part, Descartes proceeds along an altogether different pathway. He seeks to identify one absolute element which will explain the order and system of the world. He believes that this element is to be found firstly in a method of acquiring knowledge, to accept as true only what is clearly recognized as such, to analyze problems systematically in order to solve them, to move from simple to ever more complex considerations, and to pass over everything again to ensure that nothing has been left out. This painstaking application of doubt as the foundation of knowledge, whether divine or human, consists in suspending beliefs long enough to test them in the light of reason. 
Descartes believes that his ultimately psychological account of knowledge, which is slowly built up by means of systematic doubt and self-questioning, will not only result in truer principles, but also in a better life. A second point here is that Descartes believes this absolute element, which will explain the order and system of the world, is to be found in rising from the fragmentary nature of our consciousness to the infinite and perfect existence of God. And thirdly, this element can be reached by reducing the material universe to extension and local movement. Descartes equates thought with existence. God's thought has produced the great machine of the universe, which is indefinitely extended, in constant motion, harmonious and well-ordered. God's thought has also produced the self-moving human machine, which is like a watch or automaton. Man's skill in constructing automata can be likened to divine creation, although in terms of intricacy or complexity, the human creation falls well short of God's creation. The human being is, nevertheless, in God's image. Just as Descartes can assert cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, and in so doing equating thought with existence, he relates all phenomena to the idea that God has of them. Some of Descartes' contemporaries pick holes in his arguments. Mersenne, in Objections and Replies, criticizes Descartes' idea that God's existence can ever be proven simply by virtue of the fact that we have an idea of God. Mersenne argues that Descartes cannot claim to prove something to exist simply by affirming it. This, in turn, leads Descartes to compose a highly dogmatic answer to defend his way of thinking from Mersenne's criticism, and Descartes does this in the form of the following speculative propositions. The existence of God can be known merely by considering his nature. The existence of God can be demonstrated merely from the fact that we have an idea of God within us. God's existence can also be demonstrated from the fact that we who possess the idea of God exist. God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. Moreover, he can bring about everything which we clearly can perceive in a way exactly corresponding to our perception of it. There is a real distinction between the mind and the body. I mention these propositions of Descartes in order to illustrate the challenge that is posed by Descartes' circular manner of reasoning, which rests on speculative affirmations and equations, which he backs up in many cases by a rather uncertain grasp of detail. Descartes can be said to invent an idealized mechanistic body, refashioning the union of body and soul, and this in turn serves as one of the foundations for his mechanistic philosophy. The Cartesian point of departure is the assumption that, as he says, 
the number and orderly arrangement of the nerves, veins, bones, and other parts of an animal do not show that nature is insufficient to form them, provided you suppose that in everything nature acts exactly in accordance with the laws of mechanics, and that these laws have been imposed on it by God. Actually, this statement he writes to Mersenne on February 30th, 1639. This statement in itself is crucial to our understanding of Descartes. The reduction of nature to a body of laws enacted by God in order to govern the movement of matter marks a definitive break with medieval scholasticism. Now, if God is a supernatural lawmaker in a material universe where everything in nature moves according to these immutable laws, then it is Descartes' stated goal to understand these laws and how they govern human physiology as well as possible. His approach to the human machine is thus related to his understanding of mathematics and philosophy. In Rules for the Direction of the Mind, Descartes clearly states his ambition of establishing a general science, Mathematica Universalis, a science that will cover everything, which entitles other sciences to be considered branches of mathematics as well. In Principles of Philosophy, Descartes evokes the metaphor of the tree to explain the nature of philosophy. He writes, The roots are metaphysics, the trunk is physics, and the branches emerging from the trunk are all the other sciences, which may be reduced to three principal ones, namely medicine, mechanics, and morals. This entirely coherent attitude helps to explain why Descartes considers that he makes a mathematical demonstration of the movements of the heart. It also explains why he seeks to remove from physiology any possible intervention of vital spirits. Finally, it supports his view that human physiology and even the passions of the soul can be reduced to the intricate flow of matter in motion, derived from the imperceptible movements of particles in the body. Now, once Descartes has reduced nature to a body of laws and affirms that medicine requires mathematical demonstrations, then he's really waiting for a single convincing principle of a bodily mechanism to come along from which he can build the rhetorical fabric of his new mechanistic philosophy. And for Descartes, this founding principle lies in the circulation of the blood. Although Descartes can be said to misapprehend the Harveian theory, he does much to establish the reputation of the mechanical workings of the heart, particularly as they serve the metaphor of the human machine. As the Harveian scholar Roger French has written, the motion of the heart and blood remained, as Descartes had intended it to be, the most potent example of his natural philosophy's ability to explain the nature of the machine of the body. It was in association with his idea of forceful diastole that many people met the second half of Harvey's doctrine, the circulation. In Descartes' campaign to insert his natural philosophy into the universities, the importance of the example of the motion of the heart and blood was that 
Descartes could fight his battle on the medical front as well as in the arts course with his physics. Well, once Descartes affirms his initial premise, then he refers to anatomical observations made by Vesalius and Harvey, but always in a way that subtly disparages their originality. For example, Descartes writes, I've taken into consideration not only what Vesalius and the others write about anatomy, but also many details unmentioned by them, which I've observed myself while dissecting various animals. In a letter to Mersenne of November or December 1632, Descartes explains that the discussion of man in a projected work, The World, will be a little fuller than I had intended, for I have undertaken to explain all the main functions in man. I have already written of the vital functions, such as the digestion of food, the heartbeat, the distribution of nourishment, etc., and the five senses. I am now dissecting the heads of various animals, so that I can explain what imagination, memory, etc., consist in. I have seen in Harvey's book, The Motions of the Heart, which you previously spoke to me about. I find that it differs slightly from my own view, although I saw it only after having finished writing on this topic. The treatise on man appears to have been written in 1633. Here is found Descartes' first complete philosophical articulation of the metaphor of the human machine. He advances the idea that the soul is joined to this human machine. First, he says, I must describe the body on its own, then the soul, again on its own, and finally I must show how these two natures would have to be joined and united in order to constitute men who resemble us. I suppose the body to be nothing but a statue or machine made of earth. Descartes then continues with this series of metaphors. Just as people see around them clocks, artificial fountains, mills, and other man-made self-moving machines, so they can understand by analogy the perfections of God's machine. He writes, I am supposing this machine, the human body, to be made by the hands of God, and so I think you may reasonably think it capable of a greater variety of movements than I could possibly imagine in it, and of exhibiting more artistry than I could possibly ascribe to it. Descartes then goes on to affirm that the parts of the blood which penetrate into the brain produce there a very lively and pure flame which is called the animal spirits. The actions of these animal spirits nourish the brain and sustain its substance. They have the power to change the shape of the muscles in which the nerves are embedded, and by this means to move all the limbs. Well, in developing this mechanistic explanation of the nervous system, Descartes likens the action of the nerves to the grottoes and fountains in the royal gardens, from which water is thrust with such force as it emerges that it powers various machines. Indeed, he writes, one may compare the nerves of the machine I'm describing 
with the pipes in the works of these fountains, its muscles and tendons, with the various devices and springs which serve to set them in motion, its animal spirits, with the water which drives them, the heart with the source of the water, and the cavities of the brain with the storage tanks. Wow, what a series of mechanical metaphors. Descartes, after further developing this analogy between bodily functions and the action of fountains, then introduces the soul into the brain. He writes, When a rational soul is present in this machine, it will have its principal seat in the brain and reside there like the fountain keeper who must be stationed at the tanks to which the fountain's pipes return if he wants to produce or prevent or change their movements in some way. He also says that external objects, striking the sense organs, act through tiny fibers coming from the innermost region of the brain. But the rational soul does not just happen to be joined to the body. He writes, Now I maintain that when God unites a rational soul to this bodily machine, in a way that I intend to explain later, he will place its principal seat in the brain and will make its nature such that the soul will have different sensations corresponding to the different ways in which the entrances to the pores in the internal surface of the brain are opened by means of the nerves. Movements in the brain can thus explain bodily pleasure such as titillation, the perception that surfaces are smooth or rough, and such qualities as moisture, dryness, weight, and the like. Just as the soul is seated in the fountain-like brain, Descartes writes, you can think of our machine's heart and arteries, which push the animal spirits into the cavities of its brain, as being like the bellows of an organ, which push air into the wind chests. And you can think of external objects, which stimulate certain nerves and cause spirits contained in the cavities to pass into some of the pores as being like the fingers of the organist. In another work, Treatise on Man, Descartes seeks to explain in the purely material terms of mechanistic science that animal spirits form ideas on the surface of the pineal gland, which, for Descartes, is the seat of the imagination of the common sense, and indeed, as Descartes later affirms, of the human soul itself. He writes, But insofar as we have one simple thought about a given object at any one time, there must necessarily be some place where the two images coming through the two eyes, or the two impressions coming from a single object through the double organs of any other sense, can come together in a single image or impression before reaching the soul. And for Descartes, this place in the human organism is the pineal gland. In Descartes' search for order and rationality in the structure of the human body, he concludes that bodily functions follow from the mere arrangement of the machine's organs, every bit as naturally as the movements of a clock or other automaton 
follow from the arrangement of its counterweights and wheels. In order to explain these functions, then, it's not necessary to conceive of this machine as having any vegetative or sensitive soul or other principle of movement or life apart from its blood and its spirits, which are agitated by the heat of the fire burning continuously in its heart, a fire which has the same nature as all the fires that occur in inanimate bodies. In another work, Discourse on Method, written between 1634 and 1637, Descartes discusses Harvey's discovery of the circulation of the blood at some length. I find the discussion interesting since it shows up the highly speculative nature of Cartesian affirmations about physical properties of the body, which are a departure even from Harvey's wildest flights of hermetic prose about the magical properties of blood. Descartes claims that the precise location of the common sense, the memory, and the corporeal imagination will not seem at all strange to those who know how many kinds of automatons or moving machines the skill of man can construct with the use of very few parts in comparison with the great multitude of bones, muscles, nerves, arteries, veins, and all the other parts that are in the body of any animal, for they will regard this body as a machine which, having been made by the hands of God, is incomparably better ordered than any machine that can be devised by man, and contains in itself movements more wonderful than those in any such machine. Descartes maintains a lifelong commitment to this idea. In his last years, in a discussion with Burman, apparently in 1648, he reaffirms that God made our body like a machine, and he wanted it to function like a universal instrument, which would always operate in the same manner in accordance with its own laws. Accordingly, when the body is in good health, it gives the soul a correct awareness, but when it is ill, it still affects the soul in accordance with its own laws. And the necessary result of this is a state of awareness whereby the soul will be deceived. If the body did not induce this misleading state, it would not be behaving uniformly and in accordance with its universal laws. And then there would be a defect in God's constancy, since he would not be permitting the body to behave uniformly, despite the existence of uniform laws and modes of behavior. The discovery that the human body can be interpreted mechanically has led to many innovations in medical science and technology, vastly improving health and saving lives. This discovery is at least partly attributable to Descartes. T.H. Huxley writes in 1870 that the spirit of Descartes' passages is exactly that of the most advanced physiology of the present day. All that is necessary to make them coincide with our present physiology in form is to represent the details 
of the workings of the animal machinery in modern language and by the aid of modern conceptions. For Huxley, Descartes leads on the one hand to idealism, from Berkeley to Hume and Kant, and on the other to materialism, by way of La Métrie and Priestley. And I should add that Descartes' thinking has proven invaluable in the development of artificial intelligence. The tensions that exist between Descartes' religion and metaphysics on the one hand, and his natural philosophy on the other, reflect tensions building during the 17th century. In some respects, Descartes is surprisingly modern. Descartes establishes a philosophical view of the mechanisms of the mind that derive much of their strength from the metaphor of the human machine. Well, that's it for today's podcast. The next podcast in this seven-part series devoted to the human machine is going to be about Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes. If you'd like to know more about my ongoing creative works, from books, translations, films, and blogs to Wild Trekker, check out my author's website at www.evidencia.net. And evidencia is the Latin word for evidence, as in scientific evidence. Evidencia is spelt with an N, as in November. The opening theme at the beginning of each Wild Trekker podcast is sung by Marie Frenette, with me accompanying her on the piano. Now here's Marie Frenette singing the closing theme of Wild Trekker, accompanied by Pascal Desmeules on the guitar. Let's get together soon. This Wild Trekker episode is copyright 2021, George Toombs. All rights reserved. Mm -hmm.